Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be starting in chapter 8. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Craig, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you've given us uh, the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us as we we read your word and study it together. Uh, we pray as we look at it this evening that our eyes of our hearts would be opened to receive from you. Uh, bless Mark as he leads us in the study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And welcome, Mark. Well, thank you. It's good to be back with everyone. We are examining this letter to the Hebrews in uh, some detail here, and we've seen a uh, continuous comparison of the age that is about to pass away to the age that is dawning, the age of Messiah. And uh, our writer is now going to uh, extend the comparison of the high priesthood of the old age and the new age into the change of covenant that must accompany the change of age here in chapter 8. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 7 in chapter 8, please. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also has something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Great. Thank you very much. So the word covenant appears for the first time in this letter here in verse 7. 
even though many scholars call this entire letter the letter of the covenant. So it is kind of an important transition that our writer has made here uh, with his argumentation at this point. He's shown the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus Christ to the Aaronic priesthood in great detail as we looked at in chapter 7. And this high priest has ascended to the Father at the right hand of the throne. We know after his resurrection he, he told Mary and others that, that he had not yet ascended to the Father. And he did that from the Mount of Olives, of course, and has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have inherited, I guess, kind of a medieval view of, of heaven as people in white playing harps, walking on tops of clouds. But this is not uh, really the view of the ancient Hebrews or of the Bible, as, as far as I can tell at all. We have to understand that the universe is all uh, finite that God is infinite, and the entire uh, universe would fit as a speck on his uh, little fingernail, if he had a little fingernail. And the universe as space serves as kind of a shroud to isolate us from the glory of God, which would destroy us, uh, just as the glory of God that ancient Israel saw descending into the Holy of Holies at Mount Sinai or later at the dedication of Solomon's temple, that glory was surrounded by a dark cloud. And that was to protect them from being blinded or burned up by the glory of God. Moses got just a tiny glimpse of that glory. And as far as we know, his face shone so brightly for the rest of his life that he had to wear a veil to keep from blinding those near him. And so the God of ancient Israel was an infinite God. And the idea of heaven is not angels playing harps on clouds, but it is the infinite. It is the infinite nature of God. It is the spiritual realm in which God exists. And when it talks about the true tent or sanctuary in verse 2, this is a spiritual temple, not one made by any human hands, according to this writer. And I just don't know how our dispensational and Christian Zionist friends can harmonize this with their mythology, I'm sorry, their, uh, their religious views and system where they are working so hard to rebuild a physical sanctuary in physical Palestine because we're told right here that the existing sanctuary in the first century was not the true one. The true one exists in the spiritual realm and is not created by human hands. So along with a new priest and the new age, we have a new sanctuary that is not created or built by human hands. Excellent this, point there, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, it's not mine. I, I couldn't make this stuff up. It's, it's right. absolutely amazing, yeah. <laughs> um, just, I mean, it's right there in plain, plain ink. Yeah, yeah. It. And, and there's 
there's even more to come here in uh, chapters 9 and 10. It, it, it's gonna, it blew me away when I saw it. This real sanctuary that is in the spiritual realm is closely related to the better rest that our writer talked about in, back in chapters 3 and 4. The new age has a better rest. The old age had the temporary rest of the seventh day, Shabbat. But that was only a shadow of the true rest, which really exists once you walk in the door, so to speak, of this new spiritual sanctuary, uh, which I believe is described so well back in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 25, where you walk in to the gospel feast where God has done away with death. And it's a, it's the, the good rest. So this is the real spiritual sanctuary, which is the place of the real Sabbath rest of God and mankind. And it is the same, it's certainly the same league as the better country and city that we will see in chapter 11 and the unshakable kingdom that we will see in chapter 12. They're all closely related images trying to convey the same truths of our eternal standing in God's presence through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all part and parcel of the new age that was dawning as this letter was being written back in the first century. Now, the high priest, when he enters into the Holy of Holies, has to have an offering and so Jesus, at his ascension, entered into the Holy of Holies, the true immediate throne room of God the Father. And he had to have an offering to take with him. And the author goes on using, using verse 4 to demonstrate that if Christ was still in the physical realm, he could not be a priest at all because you still got the law of Moses that still exists, is still in effect at this uh, time as this letter is being written, and the temple is still standing in Jerusalem, and there are still priests there who are offering those sacrifices. But the place that they are serving is only a shadow and copy of the spiritual reality of this temple that God had purposed to build since before the creation of the cosmos. And God apparently revealed part of this eternal purpose to Moses on Mount Sinai and showed in some way how that the tabernacle to be built physically at Mount Sinai would serve as a shadow uh, of the true spiritual temple that God intended to build. And then he goes on to say, Christ has received a better service inasmuch as he is a mediator of a better covenant, enacted on the basis of better promises. And these promises are not certainly not unique to and may not even be uh, found in what we call the New Testament. At the time this letter is written, the 
all of these letters that became the New Testament were not yet circulating as a book or, or, or as a complete body of works. But the promises, I believe, as we saw when we looked at the book of Acts, are the promises given to the prophets, which are nearly always contrasted to the imminent judgment of physical Israel due to their failure to meet the requirements of the Old Covenant. So you see Isaiah pronouncing doom on Israel and then switching into these glorious promises of Israel's perfect future. You see Hosea doing the same thing. You see Malachi and Zechariah, all of them, contrasting the doom of physical Israel under the Old Covenant to the glory of future Israel under a new covenant. And, and Paul talks about this in all of his trials, and I urge you, if you haven't, to listen to some of our recordings on the last eight chapters of the book of Acts, because there are extraordinary promises in the Old Testament about the age of Messiah in which we all live now. And, and the Apostle Paul was on fire with excitement for them. And our dispensational friends have tried to claim kind of a monopoly uh, on all of these scriptures. And a lot of other groups are scared to even go there. But we should look at these promises, recognize that they apply to all of us who are included in Israel under the new age, and we all should rejoice and be absolutely excited about these these promises. So the new age has a better high priest, a better sanctuary, a better offering, which we didn't talk about, but of course it was the offering of Christ, who as the perfect man, he followed the law of Moses perfectly, which Israel did not ever do and could not ever do, and no individual could ever do. Jesus came and lived the perfect life in accord with the law of Moses, and as such, his blood became this better offering that is made to usher in the new age. The new temple could not be built without the building blocks of the purified believers, and those purified believers could not exist without the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ would have been no effect without the perfect, sinless life of Christ, which could not have existed without the law of Moses. So this is a very detailed plan that God determined before the foundations of the world and was executed perfectly in accord with God's will, exactly how, exactly where, and exactly when he had determined from before the first day of creation. And so in addition to this perfect uh, sacrifice and perfect gift, we have the better service of the new priest and, most importantly, the better covenant and the better promises. So these are all things for our audience to consider as they are faced with perhaps losing their physical lives or just sitting back, not talking about Jesus and kind of trying to melt back into their synagogue community and, and become good Jews so that they will not be singled out and persecuted in the three and a half years of horrible 
the tribulation that began when Nero agreed to to marry the power of Rome to the power of the Judean, the corrupt Judean leadership from Jerusalem. All right, we're now going to see a little bit of, of these great promises that are found in the Old Testament scriptures. Any other questions or comments down through verse 7? If not, then let's read verses 8 through 13. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Oh, great. Thank you. Now, that, that language at the end is a little bit watered down in most of our English translations, uh, where it says being obsolete and ready to vanish. The the actual Greek, I understand, is actually a little bit stronger than that. I'll read from a couple of literal translations. The uh, Young's literal translation says, In the saying new, he has made the first old, and what doth become obsolete is and is old is nigh to disappearing. And then the literal uh, translation says, in the saying new, he has made the first old, and the thing being made old and growing aged is near to disappearing. So ready doesn't necessarily convey imminence, but the original Greek conveys imminence in time. It is at hand, this word ingus in the Greek, it is at hand, near, nigh ready. So many non-dispensational Christians believe that the old covenant disappeared on the cross because Paul does write in one of his letters that the law was nailed to the cross. And I don't deny anything uh, of what Paul wrote, but just the fact that someone was nailed to the cross did not mean they usually died immediately. In fact, Jesus dying there in just a few hours was quite an anomaly, and they had to break the legs of the thieves in order to let them expire before the holy day began at sunset. So if you saw that old movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, you see hundreds and thousands of crucified slaves in Italy at the end of the movie, and they're 
you know, they live for weeks up there on the cross. They're doomed, but they're still alive. The, the, the Old Covenant lived past the cross of Christ. It lived right through the writing of this letter. It, li- it lived as long as the temple stood in Jerusalem and the Levitical priests served at the temple. But it was on the edge of extinction as our letter here is being written. Now, uh, jumping back to the beginning of the paragraph at verse 8, I didn't mention Jeremiah earlier, but, but of course here he is doing the same thing. After finding fault with the people, and you, and you can go through the book of Jeremiah and you can find page after page after page of the faults of uh, Judah, already the remnant, the only surviving remnant, of the nation of Israel. They are flawed. They are sinful to the core. Their old covenant relationship with God has utterly and completely failed. And Jeremiah documents this in in just tragic detail. Uh, He's called the weeping prophet because the story is absolutely tragic. But he interrupts his tale of tragedy and sin and separation to give one of these better promises, the kind of promises that got Paul so excited when he got the chance to share the gospel with uh, anyone. But here, here's a great one out of Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. The days are coming still afar off. I mean, as Jeremiah wrote, they were 600 years in the future. So he doesn't say the days are at hand, but he says the days are coming. And I will make a new covenant with the churches of Christ. Oh, wait. That's not what it says. The new covenant is not with the church. It is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I know this upsets Chuck to see this. But uh, here it is in black and white. And it says the same thing in verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. And uh, But not to worry, uh, again, John Hagee is not right when he believes this is referring to the present-day corrupt Marxist state and genocidal, corrupt Marxist and genocidal state of Israel in modern-day Palestine. Of course, again, as we examine in great detail in the book of Acts, this is the revived Israel that has been transformed by the work of Jesus Christ from a corrupt physical people into a perfect spiritual people suitable to be the dwelling place of God on earth and suitable to be the bride of the Son. And Israel and Judah were given every opportunity and all first rights to be the first transformed peoples of this new spiritual nation and the book of Acts documents how that after a sizable minority accepted God's offer the vast bulk of the physical nation rejected it completely at which time God opened the doors to allow all peoples of the world to be adopted in to the new Israel on equal terms with the old uh, physical members. And many of Christ's parables 
teach how this was coming, such as the, all of the parables of the wedding feast, for instance, where those who had been invited were too busy to come, and so they went out to the roads and the hedgerows and just grabbed people that were traveling through and brought them in to the wedding feast that had been reserved for the local people. Or the parable of the prodigal son, more properly called the parable of the jealous older brother, which represents the jealousy of physical Israel as all of these, the, the, the low classes of Judah, the, the harlots and the tax collectors, they're allowed in, and then, you know, the foreigners are allowed in, and the, uh, the older brother who represents the Pharisees and the leadership is incredibly angry and jealous, but he never repents. And, and so Jesus taught many, many parables of how old physical Israel would become incredibly enraged and jealous as God allows these other outcast peoples to be adopted in as equals into the new covenant Israel, of which we are all a part today. So Jeremiah is, ex- is excited, it sounds like, to see this. This is much better news than what he has been relating uh, in his book. But the covenant is with Israel and Judah. It's not like the one that was made at Mount Sinai because they couldn't follow it. And I disregarded them. God abandoned them, as we saw, again, looking at the book of Acts. The, the nation had been dead. The holy of holies and the temple had been empty for hundreds of years. God had disregarded them. But he will put his laws in their mind and write them on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. Neither will each teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And this is, we, we see this in the, the gospel. You must hear the gospel preached and believe it in order to enter into God's covenant nation. And so once you're in, you've already been taught of God and you know him. So all who are inside are already taught of God. Whereas in old physical Israel, you could be born into a family there and not have any understanding of who Israel was, what they were supposed to be, or anything, the priests and Levites had to teach the people, and that always had uh, very mixed and normally poor uh, results. I will be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. And that could never happen in the old covenant system because all the sins were brought up year after year, day after day, week after week. So it's an exciting thing that the old one that no one could follow is about to disappear and the new one is about to be consummated. All right, any uh, thoughts or comments? Did I cover myself all right, Chuck? Well, yeah, since you asked me to froth at the mouth and comment, I suppose I'll need to do that, Mark. And uh, (laughs) because I... Because I disagree with you, it doesn't mean you're not a great teacher. Uh, so uh, no discredit to you. But I, when I look at these things, I say, uh, Paul said, the old law is nailed to the cross. I take that literally. Nailed to the cross here and now at the time of the cross. It is finished, Jesus said. I take that very literally. I think when he said it is finished, he meant the whole system that he was involved in was finished. That the old went with him. 
And uh, I think Jesus said uh, of the temple, I can destroy it and rebuild it in three days. I think that referred to his resurrection in three days. So uh, the fact that I don't agree that, that, that all of this had to take place in 70 A.D., I think Jesus might have said uh, it will be it will be finished in 70 A.D. when the Romans tear down the temple. If you wanted to say that, I think you could have said that. So he did in uh, Luke 21, we, we, we verse have a, 22. We have a little difference, but that doesn't mean I don't respect what you're doing. And uh, I'm trying to keep a good humor about it. Oh, well, yeah, I, I thought you had heard some of those lessons before on Acts. But, uh, again, Jesus did clearly state in Luke 21, 22, that the destruction of Jerusalem would be the days of vengeance in which all things that are written shall be fulfilled. And so he did clearly state exactly what you just wished for him to state. And again, though, you're not really differing with me, Chuck, because again, the writer of this letter is quoting Jeremiah, who's saying the new covenant is with the house of Israel. So it's not, I didn't make this stuff up. Believe me, I could never... I could never have thought any of this stuff up. It's amazing. But again, the, the other the other means of combating the dispensational error have all fallen short because they fail to take into account these promises that were made to Israel, not to any entity known as the church as a proper name. So well, of course, have... uh, what we see, of course, is that uh, people, uh, unfortunately... Uh, think of Israel as the people who stole the name in uh, 1948 and began calling themselves Israel. So the dispensationalists simply apply that to these new folks who've uh, picked up the old name. And uh, that's what really causes the problem. It isn't that uh, God didn't do it right. It's that uh, politicians in the the 20th century uh, gave away a piece of property and the people that took it uh, were smart enough to know a good name to pick. To plug them yep, in the it's, uh, it's semantics. In politics, we have the liberty to change the names or the words to avoid uh, those types of uh, robberies. But unfortunately, when it's God's word, uh, you know, he has the first dibs on that word and what it really means. And I believe we do have a responsibility to defend the accurate definition uh, instead of just abandoning the word and adopting, you know, the vocabulary of men instead of the vocabulary of God. Um, so, I mean, we we can't just abandon the word Israel because Israel is so important to God uh, throughout the Bible, but ultimately not the old corrupt Israel of which the nation today is even a more corrupt shadow of a corrupt and dead nation, but the true spiritual Israel made alive by the blood of Jesus Christ for eternity. Well, the present state of Israel is not even part of, uh, it's just it's a, it's just a chosen name as far as they're concerned. Well, I doubt yeah, if, but they, I doubt if they, they even believe that God gave any, any blessing to them. They only believe in uh, Genesis 12. That's the only part of the Bible that they would believe kind of in. Right. Yeah, kind of right. I, I think yeah. I agree with you on that. Well, I should hope so. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for uh, and particularly Mark, for making us put on our thinking caps here.
Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.